everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and a lot of you found me thanks to my work on Lost Pirate Kingdom on Netflix. We talk about all kinds of things on this podcast, but I know that a lot of you are really into pirates and maritime history, so this summer we're going to cover a little bit more of that. Now, I am delighted to start with this great conversation with my friend A.E. Rooks, author of The Black Joke, the true story of one ship's battle against the slave trade. Between 1827 and 1832, the Black Joke captured 13 slave ships and freed 3,000 enslaved people in its service to the West Africa Squadron. This was an incredible achievement, and the story of the Black Joke is about so much more than just one ship. In today's conversation, we also talk about Britain's complicated relationship with the slave trade, the diversity of British sailors, gay relationships on board Navy vessels, and how the slave trade was ultimately, finally, abolished. Now, Rooks is a fantastic guest, and before we get to the good stuff, I have a happy update to add to this episode. Toward the end, she mentions that the book was long-listed for the Mountbatten Maritime Media Award for Best Book of 2022, and just yesterday, I got the news that she actually won. So congratulations, Rooks! It is so well-deserved, and the book is phenomenal. We are going to talk all about that for the next hour and 20 minutes, but if you are interested in this subject, go and check it out on our Patreon. The full conversation was actually about two hours long, and I have the whole thing up and available for all of our patrons on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. Without further ado, here's my conversation with A.E. Rooks. All right, everybody. My guest today is the amazing A.E. Rooks, author of The Black Joke, the true story of one ship's battle against the slave trade. We are so glad to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really, really excited to be here. I think this is going to be fun times, except oh, for yeah. talking about, but you know, the conversation itself will be fun times. Yeah, the, the conversation will be it'll be great. And it's, it's an amazing book about a, a very, very dark subject. And it's a subject that not a lot of us learned about in high school, sadly. Uh, nope. So let's start out with a little bit of context. So the Black Joke was active between 1827 and 1832. England abolished the slave trade in 1807, and the U.S. officially stopped importing enslaved people in 1808, but the slave trade was still incredibly, incredibly active. So what was the situation at this time? Okay, so that that's a that's a big question. So I'll try not to ramble on too much. <laughs> um, so a couple of things to examine there, right? If we're just setting a scene, is that the way that England got to abolishing the slave trade and the way the United States got to abolishing the international slave trade um, are very, very different, right? On the one hand, you have in England a situation where folks are like agitating for years, decades right to end slavery and the slave trade potentially um you have lots of grassroots organizations you have boycotts you have petitions you have multiple parliamentary sessions that have occurred multiple times blah blah blah, blah, blah. so it's it's a big thing right huge movement in the united states you have um a relatively easily passed congressional law <laughs> And uh, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. That's about it, right? And part of the reason for that is because <laughs> deeply ironically, um, Thomas Jefferson in 1806 is discussing the violation of human rights 
that is the international slave trade. Oh, TJ, look at home. But, um, <laughs> you know, still, like, this is a thing that's being discussed already. And almost every state had banned the international slave trade at that, or colony state, you know, whatever, um, at that point, but for um, South Carolina. So doing uh, its ban on the, international, on the international slave trade, which had been said was going to happen previously. So this is basically just following through on a congressional government promise at the earliest possible date um, was easy peasy lemon squeezy. They don't have a problem with it because there's already a robust domestic slave trade in the United States. And so the need to import is minimal, additionally, because obviously in the US slavery, the condition of enslavement passes through the mother, as opposed to in England, that was not the rule. Um, so the United States has already created a system by which through what they would call natural increase, they can just keep the slave trade going in perpetuity in the United States, just moving folks around to meet whatever industrial or agricultural needs they might have. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for the US, it's nothing. It's easy. It's done. Um, it does not mean any particular moral commitment of any type <laughs> at all. In Britain, it did. Um, and so accompanying the British law is enforcement, which we don't really see a lot from a lot of from the United States, rather. Um, and so the way that that worked is the Royal Navy was made to feel as if they had a compelling interest in this, <laughs> which is a specifically chosen phrasing. Uh, but a big part of that was because uh, slave trading was a really dangerous venture, not just for the enslaved, but also for people serving aboard those ships because a lot of times of disease and illness and whatnot. So um, estimates at that time, they did actually like a data analysis, which is sort of amazing, but like estimates at that time, came that about 20% of um, men who could sail and would be available to the Royal Navy were being made unavailable through maiming death or being simply in a different place so they would not be available to serve um, because of the slave trade, like directly. Um, and that's a huge manpower shortage um, in an age, right, where if we look at the War of 1812, part of the issue there was impressment when they're literally kidnapping people off the street to serve on ships in during wartime. So losing 20% of your available sort of constrictable population to an industry is nonsensical as far mm -hmm. as the Royal Navy is concerned. So now they have an interest in, in this happening, at least some of them, right? And it's policy, so they're going with it. And so we're still doing the Napoleonic Wars. So at this point, they can just take ships under color of war. If it's anybody they are fighting with, whoop, whoop, we can just capture you. We can decide what we're doing with the enslaved people. NBD, we're good. Obviously, I should say that not all British people left the industry just because they were told to, but I'm assuming that will probably come up more later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that That's actually a perfect segue. I wanted to ask you. Um, so, you know, obviously England abolished the slave trade in, in 1807. And now when we look back on it, like from our perspective, it seems like the obvious right thing to do. But at the time, it was incredibly divisive. At mm. its peak, about 130,000 British men worked as slavers, which is incredible to me. So mm. how dependent was the British economy on the slave trade? Uh, incredibly. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most compelling arguments against ending this slave trade is that 
there was no understanding of what it would do to the British economy. It also should be said that like, when we look at it, we can look at the slave trade as a portion of the British economy. We can also look at the British as a portion of the slave trade. And at this point, they constituted the largest group by nationality. Like the British dominated the slave trade, which is another place, right, where it's different than the United States because at the same time of abolition, the United States makes approximately, I believe, 2% of the international slave trade. Um, so what else? Um, in Britain, it was more like 40%. Wow. <laughs> it's huge right and so because it's not even just folks working as slavers right there's investments in slave trading ventures there's the owning of ships there's I mean you have ships registered with like Lloyd's of London right and there's been more discussion recently in Britain about like Lloyd's history and relationship to enslavement yes. and not but that was like and that's a huge part of it though so you have British involvement at like every conceivable like site of production along the like slave trading path, right? From um, investing in the building of ships and the doing of voyages to captaining those ships and serving on those ships to being the ultimate purchasers of the enslaved people who are aboard those ships as the plantation owners of places in the colonialized areas that will now have like it. So they were completely involved. So, and that's part of what made it so hugely scary. And like you said, so hugely divisive. Um, even the, so the Duke of Clarence at the time who will eventually become William IV, the sailor king, <laughs> <laughs> um, actually stands up in parliament to advocate against ending slavery as well as the slave trade repeatedly. So then when he becomes in charge of policy, one imagines <clears throat> that things might change a little bit, you know? And so even it was still very much in a state of flux, like while progress had been made, it did not, I think, seem to folks like that progress had to be permanent or couldn't be altered in such a way as to still end up with the same result, which you do see with like the apprenticeship system as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So al although it's, it's dangerous for the people employed as, as well, and, and, you know, of course, beyond morally reprehensible, uh, slavers continued operating because it could be incredibly lucrative. You yeah. write that the owner of the Henriquetta made a modern equivalent of $11 million from six crossings, just six crossings, trafficking enslaved people to Brazil. So yeah. how many slavers were still operating around this time? Plenty <laughs> is the short version because essentially, right, when Britain mostly evacuates the market, let's say, uh, um, you end up with a market void and that's going to be filled because there are other folks who are still engaging in the slave trade or other governments rather who are still mm -hmm. engaging in the slave trade. So you have a lot of that market being filled by Span Spanish and Portuguese um, slavers. So throughout that, then you would also get Cuban and Brazilian um, enslavers, like respectively, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we're also going through a period of great social upheaval <laughs> when it comes to um, Latin America and South America and how things are being structured um, and who's in charge where, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so Brazil will be getting free and getting independent like right before and then during this period. So then you have your Brazilian um, traffickers, you have Spanish traffickers, you have Portuguese traffickers. Um, you're not supposed to have American or Dutch traffickers. Um, and you have your French traffickers as well. And then you're also not supposed to have British ones, but so. Yeah, gosh. 
So of course, uh, that is not where the story ends for the Henriquetta. Uh, how did it become the Black Joke? And uh, why did Commodore Collier name it that? Yeah, that last one's a little difficult, but it's really <laughs> good uh, for the title of this podcast. <laughs> but um, it became the Black Joke basically through capture. Um, at this juncture, uh, the British had a system, they still have a tender system, um, but the British had a system wherein they would capture ships and then, if appropriate, repurpose them for use with the Navy, right? Save money on discount used shipping, you know. Right, you <laughs> build another one, yeah. Right, yeah. like go buy it at auction. Um, well, that'll come later, but... So- <laughs> Um, so you would capture ships and they would simply be, essentially they would be repurposed as a uh, Royal Navy vessel. So, um, at this point, we can say that Collier's ship, which is the Sybil, which is a much larger, it's a frigate. So it's, it's a much larger ship and it's a much slower ship. It's very lucky, um, mm-hmm. that essentially this was the Henry Ketta's seventh voyage and she was reputedly, well, I say she because people gender ships, which we should not do. So it was, <laughs> like uh, reputedly the fastest ship on the water right nobody was catching the ship and it was a baltimore clipper um we believe it was built in 1825 actually for uh royalty for pedro the first of brazil um under the name the griffin because that's really the only ship that was sort of registered that fits the description if you will um but that's not for sure mm-hmm. um and so on the seventh voyage the captain was just real confident like it doesn't matter like we're gonna outrun this old sort of tubby went through the napoleonic wars big old frigate that's that's not a problem right and it was it turned out because the british are what they did do incredibly well which was not build fast ships let's be clear um at this time was a gunnery Mm -hmm. um and just actually just sailing chops like the royal navy was the most professionalized sailing force on the water at this point and they had just gone through a you know multi-decade really when it comes down to it um like series of naval engagements so these folks are generally veterans of many a pitched sea battle you know and so the sybil successfully captures henry ketta um and at this point, there are courts of mixed commission that have been established to adjudicate um, what happens to these um, in slave ships, because, like, it should be noted that this is also um, some scholars, uh, Martinez um, has asserted, like, basically the genesis of international human rights law is because different um, nation states had to come together in order to form a body to adjudicate um disputes <laughs> between those two nations well what does that sound like right um so you take it to this court of mixed commission there's ones all over um the sort of atlantic region this one was usually only staffed by british judges because nobody wanted to go to sierra leone because it was considered mm-hmm. a backwater at the time it had only been recently established in the 1790s um as a colonial port uh for the british and so they try the ship they say yep seems like a slave to us usually because there's enslaved people on it that tends to really help um and then once a ship is tried and convicted the um folks on board are spread in a variety of ways that i'm also assuming we'll come back to later mm-hmm. <laughs> and um the ship itself though is put up for auction um which is incredibly inefficient if you don't do it right because the british did not retain any control over who purchased that ship 
they weren't supposed to sell to enslavers. So enslavers would simply get British proxies because British people are still involved in the slave trade. Um, would simply get British proxies to purchase the ship for them and then haul that right back to Just Brazil. Like for their, yeah, like, so there's in the book, there's one situation where I go through, there's a ship that was captured at least three times over the course, I believe, 18, 20 months, <laughs> um, just over and over and under a different name with a different captain, same owner, usually, oh, no. um, but like, or it had been sold to a different, and so they just would be capturing the same ship over and over and over again. So that's one way that these ships could get disposed of that was really not helpful. And the British are a party to creating their own problem, right? Mm -hmm. Because of admiralty policy. On the other hand, it could get purchased by a captain um usually it was a captain because you had to have the money to be able to make the purchase right so it had to be a captain or a commodore or somebody who has the ready cash for such a purchase the reason they would do that is because ships that were brought in could be very big money makers they were called prize ships for a reason mm -hmm. so um not only would uh, ostensibly because the government was real good about withholding the cash until like somebody came at them to be like i'm literally owed this money um from the actual sailors but ostensibly what could happen is that not only for the sale of the ship the money from that as well as any goods that were on the ship all the money from that as well as what was called head money um for each individual who was on the ship as a reward essentially for bringing them in um that total which was life-changing money right these are very lucrative ships um life-changing money would be distributed and apportioned based on rank throughout the members of the, sh the, the ship who caught it mm -hmm. royal navy so like a bonus essentially um but a huge bonus a life-changing change your rank bonus you know um or change your class not your rank but yeah um and so when uh when Collier decided to purchase the Henry Kenna, he did so because it was very, very fast. <laughs> like, why would you not want the super fast ship? You oh, know? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So he buys the Henry Kenna. He re he repop they they clean the hell out of it because the Royal Navy was obsessed with cleanliness in a way that you do not see in a lot of other, you know, shipping um at the time um they're actually read an example wherein they had a situation where they were making themselves sick from over cleaning like there was an increase in cases of i think it was some sort of lung such situation and it's because they're actually cleaning the decks too much oh gosh yeah um not in the but yes in the royal navy around this time um i realize that people cannot see me gesturing but just know that there is a flurry of hand gestures <laughs> everything i am saying right now <laughs> but so collier decides to purchase the henry Ketta. um he wants this fast ship to work for him helping catch um slavers so he staffs it with men from the sibyl um this is a planned thing he puts a boat from the sibyl so a little canoe basically lifeboat type situation not really a canoe a very large canoe in that world you could probably seat 10 to 12 people um on the henry Ketta um to sort of designate that it is part of the Sybil so all of Henry Ketta's captures up until a certain point are actually credited to the Sybil mm -hmm. um after it's become the Black Joke um and then he rechristens the ship the Black Joke now to us especially to me I was like this is like a historical gift you just wanted me to name the book this thank you so much Commodore Collier um, and it seems like an irony, right? Like the ship is going to be like freeing enslaved people. So ha ha ha, we get it. That's probably not at all what it meant 
whatsoever. In actuality, black joke was a term from a body song, uh, I believe a 17th century body song of originally Irish extraction. Mm -hmm. Um, And like uh, a bit of the chorus and the relevant bits would be, she showed him her black joke and her belly so white. So I think we can infer um, that perhaps it's a dark haired lass. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, so so it was 100% a synonym for uh, vulva mm-hmm. pussy, whatever people want to say it was, know, it was a rude so they would say but you know it's because they're british um, and so i don't know if you'll have to cut that but that's how they be um, but um this song was incredibly popular as a song among sailors there's lots of singing that happens with sailors they had to entertain themselves for oodles of time at sea um and so it wouldn't have been an unfamiliar reference to the sailors on board they they know what song that was um it also wasn't the first black joke in the royal navy like somebody else had used that for a actually another tender's name um a few years previous so we assume that it wasn't meant to work on as many levels as it now currently works it's like i mean like in modern times it'd be like if you named it like the hms cooter like that's like we're (laughs) that's where we're at (laughs) oh my goodness so um the black joke is said to be too fast to ever be caught it was successful with catching slave ships capturing 13 slavers and freeing more than three thousand people over about four years so for context, what proportion of captured slave ships was this at that time? Oh, like mostly all of them. <laughs> it was a really good ship. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an incredibly high proportion. It captured more enslaved ships than any other ship in the squadron for the entire time of its service. Mm-hmm. Um, it captured more slave ships than any other ship in the squadron for the entire existence of the squadron. <laughs> it was the best at that job. And it's like, I I know that 13 over the course of four years does not sound, or really like four and a half years, does not sound like the wildest amount. I get that. But like for context, like imagine that their cruising like area was over 3000 miles of coastline Mm -hmm. from the Cape Verde Islands to below Nigeria. (laughs) like all along that coast right and these are ships there's no radios there's no communicating the locations of there's no sonar there's no radar there's no anything there's no way of finding ships you just know that folks are coming probably from cuba or brazil (laughs) to somewhere along the coast of africa there are several options Uh, uh, during this time it's literally referred to as the slave coast like next to the gold coast so mm-hmm. somewhere along this stretch of coastline um to pick up enslaved to pick up enslaved people wait as long as you want to in harbor you pe- folks would just sit there especially when the black joke was known to be in the area um there are cases where slavers would simply sit um wherever they had stopped to pick up enslaved people for months waiting wow. for the black joke to go somewhere else before they left because for them like that even that cost that lost um sort of profit or whatever and the increased expenses was worth it to simply not get captured at all because the profits were so extreme Mm -hmm. right that it's like it's a business expense sometimes you just got to stay in port six extra months while we wait for that ship to go somewhere there was a 
thesis I read from um, a guy at the Naval Academy, and he was talking about how the Black joke had what they call a Batman effect, wherein essentially you weren't even just going to hang in that area. You weren't going to be in Gotham when the light was on. Like that was not, that wasn't the thing to do. You know, you wanted to preserve your your profits as much as possible. So the black choke would cruise in one case, we know for a fact that they cruised for at least four months mm-hmm. looking for a single ship uh, and seeing absolutely no one else. Yeah. So if you put all that together, 13 ships in four years is actually incredibly good for actual captures because that doesn't count ships detained um, who were probably purpose-built for slaving and were about to do such a thing but did not have enslaved people on board uh, because that was crucial to being able to convict an enslaved ship at this point subsequently. Um, British negotiation via treaty and guns and whatnot would get um, what they called um, equipment clauses added Mm -hmm. to a lot of these treaty obligations where if you had the equipment for slaving because uh, a slaving ship had to be sort of uh, kitted out in such a way as this makes sense, right? Um, If you had all of that, then you could still be convicted after 1833 in some cases, but up until this point, not so much. Um, so if you have enslaved people on board, you can capture them. So you can see a slave ship, you can know it's a slave ship, you can be 100% certain it's a slave ship, you can even smell that it's a slave ship and they probably just dropped folks off and then came back or whatever because they saw you or something and you still wouldn't be able to do anything about it. So then you have to add in all those false starts basically as well. Um, and if they were French, it didn't matter if there were enslaved people on board. Too bad. So sad because the French had not agreed to nan one thing. See, the previously ended war. So the last thing that they were going to do was give the British the right to search their vessels at sea. Are you kidding? You know, but en français. So <laughs> um, there is no way. There was no way. So if they were French, there was a case where um, one lieutenant was on, could smell the presence of enslaved people because it was one of the most well-known and powerful stenches Um, that existed in this time period that was a smelly time period all around right Um, was because usually uh, enslaved people were forced to um, go to the bathroom in just large tubs that would just sit there so just solely filling with excrement right Um, there wasn't any a lot of room made for cleanliness on board Um, you would have sick people who were just like out on the deck in like sort of an area or people who were giving birth just sort of sitting in their own effluvia you know on the deck and like it so you could smell it there are cases where people had said you could smell an approaching slave ship from over a mile away when the wind was going in the right direction from port a mile away so port is smelly and you can still smell that Um, so he knew that this was a slave ship he was certain but they had French papers. So nothing to do about it, can't do anything about it. Um, So how many ships they might have caught um, in different treaty circumstances is another question, Um, but how many ships they still managed to bring in in the like level and the variety of difficult circumstances um, that they were faced with is pretty remarkable. Yeah, it is. That's incredible. And there there are huge stretches of time as they're just kind of sailing around looking for people as well. And they still managed to capture 13 within four years. Yeah. 
That's absolutely remarkable. Um, and of course, like when they did see action, though, it was, uh, it was very, very dangerous as well. You mentioned that uh, serving in the West Africa Squadron was probably the most dangerous post in the Royal Navy. So yeah. who did it? And what was the crew like on the Black Joke? Oh, you really wanted that posting. <laughs> it seems it seems wild to say, but for the most part, you actually very much wanted to be um, in the West Africa Squadron, if possible, because of the aforementioned prize money. Yeah. Be- in a time of not war, right? One of the only places prize ships were available is off the coast of Africa, right? So you have this opportunity to make so much more money than you would just make as your regular salary um, if you serve in this squadron, right? The biggest killer though was disease, mm-hmm. not not um, slavers, right? That did happen on occasion, but British sailing was superior. So that usually when engaged, the Brits tend to come out on top. The problem is usually being able to catch someone, right? Mm-hmm. Speed issue um and also disease um one of the like first quotes in the book is talking about uh you know shanty rhyme basically where it's the one in 30 one in 50 right there's multiple versions but folks were thought to survive the bite of benin because of disease and at this time they're still thinking of it in the sense of like bad air right with your miasmas Mm -hmm. and whatnot um and interestingly enough they were able to get to the part where it was seasonal right one of the most interesting sources i found was from a doctor with um the with the royal um academy Ooh, I don't know why that word took a second to come out anyway. <laughs> but he's a doctor and he ended up being uh, the colonial doctor for Sierra Leone. And he does, at one point, he basically does a sort of pre-version. No, it's not even pre. It's just a very slow and elaborate and hand-drawn version of contact tracing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a massive outbreak of what they would have called, um, uh, well, they would have called it a lot of things. I think he calls it the Sierra Leone fever most commonly, um, but what we would call yellow fever right. uh, or malaria, usually. Um, although there were others, like there are the the litany of things that you could catch and die from, um, particularly sailing um, in the tropics if you were a European was extensive, right? And of course, obviously this goes both ways. We look at um, the extent to which there were Africans who died of European diseases, you know, indigenous Americans who died of European diseases, et cetera. So going to a place <laughs> where your immune system ain't familiar, um, turns out means that you can die pretty easily. And so folks did, particularly in Sierra Leone. Um, and so part of the reason they called it Sierra Leone fever was because it was almost cyclical. And the reason it was almost cyclical is because of mosquitoes, but they weren't thinking about it in those terms, but they, they were almost there, right? Like mm-hmm. um, he compares and contrasts like the last time they had a sort of epidemic of this severity, which had been four years before. And he notes all the ways that the weather was the same, like they're, but that sort of last step had not been reached yet. So the, the big killer unequivocally was disease more than other individuals, more than being lost at sea um, or shipwreck or anything. It was unequivocally disease. Wow. But, it, but if you did manage to survive and you could capture some of these slavers, then it could make your fortune. It could, as long as you could get the British government to pay you. Yeah, that is the trick. <laughs> was, oh people had to hire solicitors a lot sometimes, and then you had to be able to afford to hire a solicitor. A solicitor, yeah. 
Yeah, that's rough. Gosh. Mm -hmm. So we know that at least one crew member of the Black Joke was Black, Joseph Francis. So how diverse were British sailors at this time? Pretty diverse, or at least more diverse, I think, than we historically give them credit for. Um, I read an article where they sort of mathed it out at approximately every ship would have probably had between one and four uh, Black sailors. Uh, Usually, if one of them would be the cook. Joseph Francis was a cook. Um, often that was because one, like, are we trusting this inferior race with like guns and knowledge and decision making? I don't know. Um, which is annoying deeply. <laughs> um, but um, it was also because of the ability to work with indigenous foods, right? Mm-hmm. You're not getting restocked with supplies from England on the regular, unless they're rather specific items, right? For the most part, you're gonna be working with the native flora and fauna in order to create meals and whatnot. And it's actually a lot easier to have someone who's actually familiar with it to do that. Now that does not mean that the person in that position was actually from the coast of Africa in any immediate sense. Like there's already a significant black population in Britain, um, particularly in a lot of the sailing cities um, like Liverpool, like London, et cetera, um, Portsmouth. And so those folks already exist. Then you also have people who are in British colonial holdings who also exist. Like the um, population of Sierra Leone, um, particularly Freetown, right, the capital of Sierra Leone, is not predominantly people who are from Sierra Leone at mm-hmm. all, actually. Um, a lot of the people came were um, Nova Scotians um, who had originally supported the British in the uh, little thing we like to call the Revolutionary War here. <laughs> <laughs> the American War of Independence, I guess is what it's called most other places. Um, but during that war, there are a lot of Black folks supported the British because of, I don't know, the lack of enslavement thing was like really cute. (laughs) And then they eventually get screwed. Uh, As a result, the British say they're going to give them this land. It's sort of a pre 40 acres and a mule, but weirdly similar kind of situation in Canada. And they're given the land, but then white settlers um, proceed to force them off of it or take all the best land, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They complain to the British government, like, look, we did all this service. We did all this stuff for y'all. We like uprooted our whole lives for getting this done. This was the deal, what's going on? And so rather than, I don't know, do the right thing and just enforce the situation that they had created, um, the British government sort of gets the idea of what if we, and with some complicity from some folks who were doing that, like some folks were very in favor of this idea. What if we move everyone to this whole new colony um, and help may use them to help settle that? That'll be great. They also uh, had a large contingent of Jamaican Maroons Mm-hmm. um who were moved over there um they had and then they had an entire population the largest part of the black population were people who had been um compulsively repatriated let's say <laughs> um, from enslaved ships to sit residents of sierra leone mm-hmm. uh, so you have very few native if you will Sierra Leoneans who are living in Freetown proper beyond that yes in Freetown not so much 
So um, we end up in a situation where you've got one to four Black folks. You also could have had what they would have considered very diverse then, right? Um, having Irish people on board or non-English people on board because a lot of these folks were considered very much separate races, right? Mm -hmm. Slavs and whatnot. Um, there also might've been Asian folks on board um, because British intervention in Asia, and that's putting it real euphemistically, um, had been... Um, ongoing at this point for quite some time, right? Mm -hmm. So um, there's also possible to have folks with Asian heritage who are serving as well. So we don't know because unlike the United States, the British were not particularly rigorous in noting the race of like everyone in every piece of data that they ever collected. Um, so sometimes it can be really difficult to tell, but like, as a, for instance, the um, Collier would have served with um, black folks because he served under Admiral Nelson. Yes, that Nelson. Mm -hmm. um, and on on the victory, so for the Battle of Trafalgar, we know that there were at least 10 black sailors mm -hmm. on there. Even in paintings, you will actually see them in there. Um, we know that there were black sailors who had been promoted to warrant officer. Um, and then because of racism, uh, the white sailors would not respect their authority. So they had to be demoted because you can't have a situation where somebody's authority isn't being respected on a ship. Um, so there's an ostensibly colorblind system, but it's not um, because of systemic and institutional racism um, that will prevent people from sort of being ahead. I should note in the Caribbean, things were a little different because in 1777, if I recall correctly, uh, there was a law passed dictating that not more than four black people could serve on any one ship at any one time um, because of a fear of slave insurrection, um, a fear of them, I guess, working with enslaved people to do the bad things. Um, and so you have a situation where the closer in proximity those ships were to enslavement um, on, on land, the more restrictive the rules around Black sailors got. Mm -hmm. So most intense in the Caribbean, um, less intense the further out you got. It also should be noted that a lot of Black sailors would prefer to serve in the Navy than other places because their likelihood of getting kidnapped and enslaved or re-enslaved as a quote unquote prize Negro um, was much lower on a Royal Navy vessel than on a merchant vessel, which might get captured by pirates, mm -hmm. which might be, um, which might end up in a situation where they essentially are kidnapped and enslaved. And that happened like there, um, and even in the context of the Royal Navy, there was a guy, I believe, this is much earlier, who was a really, really good um, violinist and so he was basically kidnapped from the ship that he was enslaved aboard to serve like on a Royal Navy ship as like a musician. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. But, but in general, it was, it was safer for them to, mm -hmm. to be on like a Navy ship as opposed to like a merchant vessel, as you mentioned. Much safer. And yeah. I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there was also going to be at least another 10 to 15 black people on board. They um, <laughs> would be native Africans that were known as crewmen, K-R-O-O-M-E-N, not K, not C-R-E-W-M-E-N, because, yeah. But the crewmen were usually, um, they were a tribal group. Would now I think we would think of them as a language group from what we would call the coastal area of Liberia and surrounding environs. 
um, who often served on both merchant and British ships as sort of the um, indigenous and often used for the brunt scut labor that they knew for a fact was more likely to kill um, British soldiers. Um, a subsequent Commodore uh, would actually end the practice of sending crewmen to like clear bush and do that because that's a great way to get malaria is to just go into the swampy mosquito place and start cutting down trees. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, but so a lot of times crewmen reached that. Crewmen were also excellent swimmers and divers. There was an example where an enslaved uh, child fell overboard during one of the captures um, and the two crewmen jumped in to save him. And they managed to actually swim over to him in open water, get the child and bring him back aboard the Black Joke. That's incredible. Yeah. At one point I read about a pirate ship that was crewed entirely by previously enslaved Africans and uh, whatnot who would go around um, capturing enslaved ships, then murdering the crew and setting all the enslaved people free and then selling the ship. So they still profited. Nice. Um, And I was like, y'all are awesome. I'd like to know more about you. Um, But that's one of those, you know, you read it like three lines about it in one book and then you can never find it again moments. Right, right. So it, uh, it's a lot more diverse than people expect, like, especially these historical dramas you see where everybody is just like super white and English, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's aggressively, aggressively. Yeah. And English, too, is like, I think that's a big one because like, obviously, they did not think of Irish people as remotely near the same people or even Scottish people, right? Although Scottish people you would see in the officer class, right? Um, sure. But um, Irish people were, they're different you know, Slavic people are different, um, just regular old Europeans, like there were some Italians that were like on the, uh, or people of Italian heritage, I don't know what their nationality was, um, who were on the HMS African, um, which was the ship that Downs had served on when they had that huge, you know, sex at sea scandal. Yeah. So you end up with a really diverse coterie of people that definitely do not look do not look like what we would normally see in a lot of these films where it's like all Brits all the time like even these expeditionary forces would have like Norwegians or you know like it just it was a lot more diverse I think than we give it credit for but I guess that's also really common yeah yeah absolutely they didn't all look like Russell Crowe or whatever who of course is Australian so right (laughs) (laughs) they definitely didn't Australians are probably few and far between because most of them were imprisoned at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. <laughs> that part. <laughs> well, um, I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, Henry Downs, actually. So uh, prior to being the second captain of the Black Joke, he was the captain of the African, which was found to have a massive homosexual subcommunity comprising the entire front half of the ship. What a story. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, so he was, uh, he was a lieutenant um, on the African. He was an acting lieutenant when he went when they left, because they went on a three-year tour to Asia, basically. So he's an acting lieutenant when they left, gets confirmed as a lieutenant while they're gone. So far, so good. This is how it's supposed to go, right? Right. Um, And then turns out that there seem to be all of these instances of people having sex all over the front half of the ship. Um, This is a almost all of this comes from a historian, uh, B.R. Berg. Um, And I think like Boys at Sea is one of them, Um, but he's got a couple of different books on this. Um, And so invaluable, like I'll just be explicit. (laughs) (laughs) But so Berg tells us that 
people are saying that they have instances of having sex in the galley, um, between the guns, underneath the tarps, in broad daylight or during the dog watch when most people are going to be like eating and roaming about also at night. Um, so just, but like sort of all over the front half of a ship that's only 153 feet long. Mm-hmm wow um so you end up with approximately 10 percent um were at least ended up in the subsequent like court proceedings mm-hmm. uh being accused or accusers of engaging in this homosexual activity um fully a quarter of the ship's crew would have to be would touch this trial in some way either as witnesses or accusers or accused or whatnot and this would range in age from boys as young as 16 and 17 um to full-grown adults um who are considered the ringleaders of like the group um who could be in anywhere from you know adult to like 40s probably um and so downs is tricky to pin down in all of this a little bit because we know that he was definitely not the most vociferous enforcer of the Royal Navy's uh, Article 29, which is the um, article that uh, condemns homosexuality. And actually, because it's short and I pulled it up, I actually want to read it because that way people yeah. know what 29 actually says. So, uh, so it's the 29th Article of War, officially. Mm-hmm. If any person in the fleet shall commit the unnatural and detestable sin of buggery and sodomy with man or beast, he shall be punished with death by the sentence of a court martial. That's wide. Um, so at this point, we have to clarify the fact that for the purposes of the Royal Navy, the crime of buggery required anal penetration and ejaculation. You could not prove the crime of buggery with just one or the other it would be hard to prove both you would think but apparently i guess like the part of the idea is that like that way it's like proof that like you're fully participatory in it and i, I don't i don't know why we're, we're why we're drawing this line right berg probably knows. but <laughs> but like they're so they're drawing this line and indecency you know is just sort of like or uncleanliness right it's just sort of any sexual act that any sailor could conceive of with not a lady on the ship, right? Um, is basically where they're going with that. So you could get anywhere from, you could be imprisoned in Newgate for a period of time. You could receive uh, lashings. And for the record, this is not like 10 or 20. This is like in the case of the African, I believe it was 170 and 200 lashes. Um, so it's enough lashes to kill you. So if you survived the lashes, you didn't get a death sentence, I guess. Um, or you could just get a straight up death sentence, which is what you would get for buggery. So uncleanliness, um, indecency, those words tend to lead to what they would have called the lighter sentences, although obviously we would not consider them that at all. Um, and then buggery would be death sentence. Um, and so you end up in a situation with the African where several, a number of people end up in jail, a number of people end up with lashings and a number of people end up being killed. And Downs would have been a witness to all of this, literally and figuratively, because even if he himself wasn't particularly involved in the community, which we believe that he is, we have no evidence that he was. Um, although I will add that he was a confirmed bachelor. Yeah, he never married. Right. So maybe, right? But um, 
he definitely was not as active when it came to enforcement because we know of an instance um, wherein something was reported to probably him because um, the spelling is different in the incident report, obviously, but um, probably it was Downs and it was reported that, you know, these two men are going at it in like the galley and Downs like, oh, that's terrible. So he like goes and tells the captain, which is his job, but he does like absolutely nothing else, which I know that seems a lot like snitching for folks, but hold the phone because in a similar incident, one of his co-lieutenants was told that two men were in the act of, you know, uncleanliness or whatever um, in a different part of the ship. And that guy immediately rounds up two midshipmen, a quartermaster and a couple other people to go break this up, catch them in the act. So that way, like the scourge of them can be removed from the ship and, you know, Article 29 can be enforced. And so comparatively speaking, Downs' attitude to homosexuality seems much more relaxed than others, right? And like, and if that seems like that's not enough to be clear, like the HMS African was broken down, like as if even the ship itself was like sh too shamed to exist. Like they literally dismantled the whole thing rather than even rechristen it and send it back out. Like, so the opprobrium was very real and very intense. Um, Downs actually did not get another birth because births weren't guaranteed, particularly mm -hmm. after the war. And there were a lot of people who were very hungry for way fewer jobs than had previously existed. Um, and there was no retirement pay or you know leave pay, like half pay was a thing that would be coming for officers at least, but yeah. So Downs wouldn't get another birth um, after the African until Sybil. So we're talking years that he actually went without a birth at all, basically simply by sort of being tarnished with the same brush as the ship and what happened there and like the wow. scandal that happened there. So when he gets the Sybil, this is like finally his chance to sort of like actually be able to advance in his career that might have completely evaporated in other circumstances. Um, and so the black joke becomes like his way to finally get promotion and promotion to a level captain or actually, yeah, commander and then captain because they invented commander right around this time as a separate thing um, where he would actually be able to receive half pay if he um, left the Navy for whatever reason. And Downs didn't really need it. He was reasonably wealthy, but nonetheless, it made a huge difference. Of course, yeah. Now, one thing I've come across before, I think it might actually be that book that you mentioned. Um, it's just the idea that, you know, of course, you know, homosexual activity is is illegal at the time, although, mm. you know, not everybody was necessarily executed for it. You know, if you were convicted of it, you could be sentenced to time in the Navy, which yeah. seems crazy to me, you know, so it's like, okay, <laughs> you're gay. So we're going to send you to sea with a whole bunch of other men, you're going to be isolated with them. And some yeah. of them are probably there for the same reason that you are. But yeah. it's okay, because we have a rule. So like, <laughs> like, did it not occur to them that this is probably not going to actually cut back on that? I honestly, I don't think so. I really, I don't. <laughs> I think I truly, because it's like, well, you know, if you do it, you die. And mm -hmm. I do think that there was a certain extent of if you don't do it, if you don't get caught, you know, and like there were cases where men would sneak women on board, like wow. for a while. <laughs> so not in the West Africa squadron, but um, in other like sort of venues. 
um that is a thing that like had had happened you know there are also yeah. women who sneak on board and serve or reputedly there had been women who had done so um yeah. in previous years right so like I think they I I truly don't I think it was one of those things where it was like it was sort of a known situation but this the case of the African became so quote-unquote flagrant like it could not be ignored yeah um in a way that other things like more sort of quiet on the DL, you know, type instances might've been allowed to let slide because I think it is the same author. Cause he talks a lot about how like ships captains and like boys and having them like in their room and stuff like that. Right. So the extent to which it was visible often ex like impacted the extent to which it was prosecuted. And especially like, if you can't prove it, you know, or you have like one eyewitness saying something, but you know, like, how are you going to prove that somebody's ejaculated you know? I mean, I don't right, know. exactly like were you there at the moment did you like mm -hmm. which is why I think in part like if we look at the the co-lieutenant example that he wanted to catch them in the act because I mean if you're gonna right but I mean in the case of the subsequent trials people would testify as to yeah. whether somebody did or did not ejaculate after anal penetration right so they they knew what they were asking about to get to which charges were appropriate and I mean, like they used very frank language. Like if, if folks think this is like some delicate um, Victorian, because we're right before Victoria, right? We are so close. <laughs> this like delicate language of like refined, we don't show table legs because they're too sexy kind of society. That was not the language being used here at all, right? Sure. Uh, not remotely so it's a lot of really frank discussions about like what was happening about like the level of I think what we would now call consent like were you pressured into it versus not especially for the uh, like teenage boys so this idea that the ringleaders right the initiators had to be treated especially harshly um compared to what would have been thought of as more quote-unquote passive participants who still had to be punished extensively Right. But since they weren't like the ringleaders, the initiators or the sub community, they were treated in a different way. So you, if you look at the guys who were executed versus the guys who got jail time, you'll notice like a difference in both age and how they were thought of vis-a-vis -vis proximity to the quote crime of sodomy at sea. Wow. But uh, of course, now this is a, a previous ship. Now we don't we don't know if anything like that ever happened on the Black Joke. No, um, we can probably safely assume that there was some hanky panky somewhere, I think. Um, it seems reasonable <laughs> to assume that, um, but it would be an assumption, right? We actually don't have any evidence whatsoever of the nature of like the sexual relationships on board the Black Joke. And even for the squadron generally, it's sort of, we don't have a ton about that because it's one of those things like, you know, like sex all the time. It tends not to get written about unless <laughs> something goes really or you're looking at someone's very personal correspondence right like mm -hmm. maybe you get like some more commentary on what's going on there um and in this case we don't we don't have any of that so we do know that the women of west africa were less than impressed <laughs> with um, what England was bringing down, as it were, um, we know that from a couple of like uh, travel type accounts from people who were in the Royal Navy that women were just like, "Ew, no, mm. no, thank you." Um, <laughs> Saint Helena, which had been colonized for a lot longer um, at that point, did have sort of receptive ladies. So as far as like Collier was concerned, like if 
for sexual release purposes um like that's why ships needed to stop at saint helena to pick up veggies and recuperate and bang some ladies yeah actually <laughs> who, yeah. who okay with it being a white dude yeah you need that kind of release yeah or you're just going to be getting it at sea and god knows we can't have that right so although uh the, the black joke was very very successful at, at what it did but it only sailed for about four and a half years before it was destroyed so what happened? Why did it end? Essentially what happens is the Admiralty stops backing this incarnation of the tender program. At first, like when Commodore Hayes, who replaces Collier and is actually much more of a true believer in um, the mission, um, when Hayes replaces Collier, he sort of arrives with not only tenders in tow, but like papers to authorize other tenders um, because you have to have a copy, official copy of papers you know, documents to be a, a real ship's tender um, and to be legally allowed to capture slaving vessels. So he arrived with several copies, right, um, without like necessarily the name of the ship filled in. Mm -hmm. So that way he could just, you know, work around it. But within very short order, um, the Admiralty would have backed out of this policy. They would decide they don't want to do tenders at all. Um, it just looks so bad when these slave ships are recaptured and then reused. And it's like, but that's literally what this system would prevent. <laughs> um, there's also a lot of pride and sort of, let's say, hurt feelings bound up in the fact that, that at this point, the Royal Navy has been working on its own sailing program for quite some time. It's a shipbuilding program. Um, Hayes was actually, who was known as like the Magnificent, like that that was his name. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible nickname. <laughs> a lot about Hayes. So Hayes, uh, actually, one of the things he did is he designed ships among other things. So one of the ships that he brought down with him was a ship of his own design to work as a tender, the Seaflower. It didn't work as well. Um, it turns out the Americans had really done a number on <laughs> their shipping that uh, British shipwrights really just had a difficult time catching up with um, when it came to rebuilding these. And so for a lot of them, what they would do is they would remove the lines of the ship and basically dismantle it and see how it was built so that way, you know, things could be replicated, ideas could be tried, um, innovations could be um, reused, repurposed, stolen. Um, um, but that didn't happen for the Black joke uh, because of more hurt feelings. So <laughs> um, Hayes is eventually, he gets incredibly frustrated by the situation wherein um, like the French uh, slaving situation is really, really bad currently, although actually this would change reasonably soon um and so he's just anybody can pretend to be a french slaver at this point um because it's the bourbon flag which is for those who don't know an unrelieved white field mm -hmm. so like hayes is complaining about people just running like tablecloths up their flagpoles and like saying claiming to be french from afar because they know that the english aren't allowed to board french ships wow. so even if you're french the French flag, because it was a very easy flag to replicate, <laughs> especially from a distance, um, was used to shield all manner of folks because they knew what the British weren't going to do was get back into a war with France at this precise moment. Um, so Hayes is incredibly frustrated. The Admiralty is slowly but surely becoming more reticent about using tenders in this way. Um, and part and parcel of all of that is the ascendancy of a guy I mentioned earlier, William IV, the Sailor King, um, who, as the Duke of Clarence, had stood up in the House of Lords arguing against the end of slavery and against the end of the slave trade for his political positioning on this. 
Um, and he's now king and he's called the Sailor King because he was very much into the Navy as a younger son who eventually manages to get on up into the top seat through a series of, you know, brothers dying, essentially. Um, and at one point he had been appointed the Lord Admiral. Um, and so he was just really, really, really into the Navy. Like that was his thing. Um, but he was also really, really, really into hating France and any other places that had navies that might be comparable or about to be comparable to the Royal Navy. Um, and he was really into the slave, ending the slave trade is pointless, right? And so at this point, you have a situation where we are too far gone to turn back now on a lot of these issues. But what he can do is change the extent to which and the priority with which the uh, Royal Navy allocates resources and policies that encourage the ending of the slave trade. And so right around this time, you see a period wherein the use of tenders is disallowed. Wow. So no longer can you do this also. Um, and eventually they fix it. So the Royal Navy will purchase the tenders and do something with, or purchase these like ships at auction. Um, but they, captains are no longer allowed to purchase ships at auction past a certain point. Um, and so this idea is to sort of professionalize and make more cohesive the nature of the vessels within the Navy, but it also has this other effect of actually making patrolling for enslaved vessels or enslaving vessels that much more difficult in a time period where actually they'll still be dealing with really quite active um, venues for slave trading across the world, not just to the Americas, for at least the next 20 to 30 years. Wow. And that gets you into like the Gladstone era in like the 1850s. But then it gets you to the 1890s before the international slave trade is actually agreed to be illegal and outlawed by all parties, which sounds awesome until we realize that it's basically the same conference that's the partition of Africa. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to end the slave trade for sure. Definitely. But everybody wants to get one of these colonies though, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the Black Joke basically is a victim of its own success. Right. Um, so when Hayes is replaced, uh, he's replaced by uh, Warren. It is not professional to come across historical subjects whom you do not know, but you just do not like in your soul. <laughs> and Warren irksome <laughs> just deeply. Oh, I don't like this man. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, folks. I just I don't. Um, like he does a lot of things that are clearly for bureaucracy. Like so he's told to save money. So he decides that everyone's gonna requisition their wine um from one place down near South Africa because it's cheaper. Um, and these two squadrons that used to in exist independently, sort of West Africa and the southern part of Africa, the Cape Squadron, are now going to be one giant squadron, and everybody's going to get their wine, which is required on ships, right, from the Cape, which means that they're going past the Wine Islands, which is where the people in the West Africa Squadron, and like Madeira is right there, um, and they're like, no, you're not going to do any th that anymore because it's cheaper, and they're like, but it's not cheaper. You have to go an extra several thousand miles to get it all carted back up here. There's no way with the additional cost that that's cheaper. Did Warren care? He did not. And that's just the kind of guy he is. Um, and so this is where the spoiler is about to come in. So for anybody who's like, I do care about spoilers and I might read this book, make good choices. Okay. But 
Warren gets there and he's brought like two ships, like sort of his pet ships that are the flower of the most recent uh, like output of the Navy's own like sailing program, which is also the Royal Yacht Club. And there's a lot of other places to explore with that. But um, the Black Joke at this point is supposed to be worn out. There have been like complaints about it. It's had to be refit several times. It's disappeared um, for a couple months at one point. Um, so it's definitely been through it because at this point we have its years of service as Black Joke, but also its years of flagrant assholatry um, as wow. the Henrietta, you know, to contend with. So it's been around for a minute. So it, even though it's reputedly worn out, its current captain, who's actually also my least favorite captain of the Black Joke, if we're just talking about all my historical biases, which is Huntley. <laughs> um, but in fairness, he didn't like Black people either, so it's fine. <laughs> but like Huntley had just recently captured a, a slave ship, again, which not common, right? Still not supposed to be very easy to do. Um, and then Warren decides that they're going to have a sailing trial. Mm -hmm. where black joke is going to sail against these other ships and that's going to be how we figure out what to do with this right and the black joke sails rings around them so there's no question that it's still unequivocally faster and still can be a service at this point the head of the governor or lieutenant governor of sierra leone has said that they would totally be happy to take the black joke as like a sort of a port like harbor ship used to like transport things or whatever and then never gets too far out to sea you know you don't have to worry about it seaworthiness as much it'd be super useful um warren says no and so not only does he say no he's a petty petty betty and so hayes has presented him with all of this like no it's fine hayes has had people who were um now what they would have called liberated Africans and what we would now call recaptive Africans um, who are now residents of Freetown and of Fernando Poe who have heard about um, that the black joke might potentially be dis like destroyed um, literally like begging him on the street like like we'll take it like they raised money like a community of free Africans like raised money to purchase the ship that had freed so many people to save it from destruction. Uh, Warren said, no. Um, and so he insisted, insisted that the black joke would be burned. Its wow. lines would not be removed. They would never find out what made it fast. They would never find out anything more about its ship's line. Anything that could be salvaged for a repurposed for other use by the Navy or soul that was on board would be removed and it would be put to the torch. And not only that, that Hayes would have to do it as essentially his penultimate act as the Commodore on the West African coast. So we just don't like Warren, y'all. I'm sorry. He's a bad dude. I don't like him. So, um, and Hayes does. Yeah. So um, they burn the ship and he leaves. That's it. Like, it's basically like the last thing he does. He takes all the other tenders that he has with him. Um, so that way they will not meet the same fate, which is actually how we end up with the um, actual lines having been taken off of a ship that what Black Joke captured called the Dos Amigos, which is at this point known as the Fair Rosamund and is actually the subject of this amazing project by a historian in Florida, uh, Dinsalu Tinney, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, because it's one of the, if I think it's the only example of a slave ship's actual build that exists, it had its mind removed and survived. So this is how we know how these like these particularly purpose-built clippers for slaving were actually constructed. Um, just that one. That's it. Uh, yeah, that's it. 
that's it. what's left of the black joke is we have some um, memorial things that were carved out of wood from it um we have a, a little couple of like there were some samples that were supposed to be showing like how like bad the carpentry was or whatever you know how like worn it was that you know probably just dust in an envelope at this point um and then you have you have more remnants of the ships it captured quite frankly than you have of it itself gosh that's so sad like really over the top that that he just wanted to destroy it that thoroughly i mean like i can't i can't think of like any justification for that that's just like a vendetta he just hated the ship yeah and he also refused to he didn't report the results of that sailing trial to the admiralty he just you know he just said no nah, it's still worn out and he just decided he wanted to burn it anyway what a dick yeah <laughs> like, fuck that guy god oh my god like, filled with dicks you are king dick jesus exactly, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> like there are like a lot of dicks in this book Tons, you know? so many so so many i guess we should reserve <sighs> one king dick for william the fourth himself but still yeah so many you are you know admiral dick um, <laughs> oh my god all right yeah. well, okay so now we can look back on the end of slavery like it was inevitable and just sort of like happened like magic overnight right or at least like with the civil war but mm. but how did it really happen? And I know that, you know, I'm not trying to ask for for like, let's talk about this for five hours. But but what <laughs> I'm trying to get at is like, what can this story tell us about the effort needed to make major changes like this? Mm-hmm. And I think it, so this is one of those moments where I think like the title of your podcast is really interesting, right? Because I think this is super dirty history, mm-hmm. not dirty in the sexy way. <laughs> <laughs> really but dirty in the sense of grimy in the sense of not cute not neat not packaged not anything not streamlined none of that and I think that what this tells us is that it takes a long time and no progress is really that safe yeah um and I think that's something that we're experiencing a lot now you know uh, both here and in the UK um wherein it feels like a time where some things that we feel what we don't have to talk about this we don't have to talk about whether or not giving asylum to refugees is a good idea we don't need to talk about whether or not we should make people feel less than and deny their opportunity um, to public accommodation because of their gender right we have to talk oh we do oh fuck um because i think it's really easy to think of history as this like you know, the arc is long, but it bends towards justice, right? Benz is doing a lot of work there because <laughs> that's a small thing, right? Yeah. And it has to be bent. It just doesn't like, it does not bend on its own. It takes sustained pressure. And like in this particular case, you end up with a situation where slavery is not mostly illegal in the British Empire until after the black joke is already off the water. So they're doing all of this promote to end the slave trade, but still keeping slavery. So then at that point, you still have the apprenticeship system in Jamaica and other places like that, where even if it's, it's just slavery by another name, right? You're an apprentice who's essentially unpaid and who's being kept for 14 years or longer if we decide to ignore it, doing the exact same work right and and you can draw direct lines from what was happening during the black jokes era to what's happening afterwards because one of the options for recaptive africans if they did not get settled in sierra leone if they did not end up being forced to serve in a segregated unit of like you know 
British armed forces on land, um, if they were not young boys who were taken into the Royal Navy, then a lot there was a significant minority of folks. Well, I guess I should also say the two options, other two options, if they did not die, mm-hmm. because a lot of folks were still just dying from diseases and whatnot from the journey, um, and like the ardors and the horrors of that, if they did not leave because people were not just trying to sit around and take it all the time. And many folks fled the colony to either try to get back home or at least not live under British rule. Yeah. Um, if all those things didn't happen, they could very easily end up on a ship headed to where? Jamaica. To do what? Cut sugar cane. Why? Because the British said so. So how different, really, with what a new name, right? Like, they're still renaming people in this. I ran across one example where a clerk, I guess he just wanted his logbooks to be preemptively alphabetized. So he would just give, he would just ignore whatever name people said and just give them a name that would make it in alphabetical order as he wrote. That is crazy. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so while in retrospect, right, the British are doing what we will ultimately come to see is the right thing Mm -hmm. the extent to which they and everybody let's be clear (laughs) like because lots of people weren't doing not a bit of nothing c-e-g the u.s or they were claiming to i guess in our case but doing very little or not trying to do anything at all c-e-g spain and portugal who had to be paid to enter into a treaty agreement with uh britain on this issue um what they were doing though they could have done so much more and I think that's the other is is to not be sort of easily satisfied with small progress right because it's not enough and you know it's not enough and it's a lot easier to sort of push back against than just going for the goal right in the first place or a sustained battle um for what is the correct principle in, in in that situation and I think what you see with this is folks got tired right like you just had this huge like protests and campaigns and like constant agitation and struggle and it's going to be done and we're going to end the slave trade and everybody's going to see it and they're going to agree with us because it's the right thing to do and you know glory glory hello yeah whatever right like that's that's the vibe and then they do it and, oh, wait, nobody wants to go along with this because they'll lose money and we'll have to get people to enforce it. But the people who are supposed to enforce it are like the most enthusiastic partners, right? Depending on their own personal convictions and personal investments. <laughs> um, like, and it's exhausting. It's exhausting to keep having to fight for the same thing over and over and over again. And that's what they had to do. That was the battle from the late 18th century to at least, I think we could call it legally, at least we'd call it mostly squared away, right? By the mid 19th century um, is agitating for something relating to the slave, ending the slave trade or ending slavery or enforcing the ending of same, you know, mm-hmm. And into all of this, you have colonialism. So on the one hand, it's the right thing (laughs) to do. And on the other hand, it's completely enabling Pax Britannica. Britain has the right to like search everybody's ships now. Like, and if they don't have the right, they have the guns, right? So we get to gunboat diplomacy, but they have so Britain's treaty partners, if they were, you know, 
European nations or European empires, yeah, yeah, sure, they're going to pay, you know, Portugal and Spain huge amounts of money and all this stuff for the right to do this, and we're going to agree to it. It's going to take a long time. We're going to go through all these negotiations and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. If it's like an African tribal leader or a newly independent Latin American nation, um, you know, the form of that negotiation takes a bit of a different tenor. Like Britain was threatening to w- withhold recognition of Brazilian independence unless Brazil acquiesced to the ending of the slave trade, which is not an argument that they're going to make with France, right? So you end up with even the battle to do the right thing can still be threaded with lots of racism, lots of assumptions, lots of paternalism, lots of bullshit, mm-hmm. right? Um, that ultimately isn't going to be helpful in the long term in changing hearts and minds and trends and attitudes. Um, so the how matters, the why matters, the length matters, and the being tired matters, but none of it matters enough to stop. Because yeah. stop or if you take your foot off the brake, or if you give it a second because Jesus, this is exhausting or like whatever, Um, as we have seen, and as they saw, people who are not interested in that cause or do not believe in that principle are more than happy to fill in that gap Mm -hmm. by making it as difficult as possible to actually enforce whatever you've done or making it as difficult as possible or making it as unappealing as possible right? Like why should British lives be lost for this would have been a really popular argument back in the day. Yeah. You know? So I think the lessons to be learned are one of those, or like, I guess the, the conclusions to be drawn or whatever is that there are very few conclusions. (laughs) We still have a slave trade now. It just doesn't look like that anymore, you know? So there's, there's no time where you get to stop fighting, which is, oh my God, it's so exhausting. Look, I'm really sorry, everybody. That's a bummer. <laughs> but there's not is the truth of the thing. Because if it's a principle and if it is so ingrained in society that people cannot imagine life without it, then pulling that out like by the root is going to be the process of generations, potentially of concerted effort to get to something that looks different than that. But it can be done because now we think the international slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade as constituted was a gross violation of human rights that never should have happened. And it's disgusting, right? And that is not just a statement that you could have made without any question whatsoever or somebody interjecting, but what about Christianization Um, (laughs) back then? So it matters. It's just not gonna be cute very often. Yeah, it's just not overnight. It takes decades. Decades and like decades of, groups like coalition building right it takes concerted effort across a lot of facets and people to like really want to to really believe that something is true and that something has to be done about this because without pressure right from a variety of folks things don't get done um the whole like Hayes complaining mightily about the French flag thing. He wasn't the only one, but you end up in a situation where the king of the French, after their most recent revolution, is bringing in a new, much more liberal, less ultra conservative, and is willing to play ball. Let's talk about ending the slave trade. Let's actually make that mean something. Let's not just make agreements and have talks and like have lots of pretty documents that everybody signed let's actually do something about this that's going to make a difference. So like all the agitation matters. 
so you have political battles, right? So there's kings and parliaments and huge sea changes, like the reform movement in like Britain is huge in this moment, right? You have all this political stuff happening. You have agitation from women. We have like, we have the nascent beginnings of a lot of suffrage movements in both England and the United States are found in agitating over enslavement, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's like now we're, we're collectively organizing. We have, wait a second my ass can't vote either right <laughs> um, you know and so you have a lot of collectivizing there you have like these movement building and it's just sustaining it and keeping it going but it's so important and people were able to come up with a lot of really innovating innovative and like great ideas yeah you just you just have to stay in the trenches for basically ever for basically ever yeah and, basically and that's where we are. Where can we find more about you and your work? How can we follow along with your with your research? That presupposes that I'm better at social media than I am. But what a lovely question. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, so I have a website, so aerooks.com, pretty simple. Um, and so I should I should update that more. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so there's that. Um, let's see, what else? Um, I'm was current. I'm long listed right now. We're eagerly awaiting the release of the shortlist and then whatever. Um, for the Mountbatten Award for best book, which is really exciting because, like, first of all, there's like 60 other books, so it's it's wild. If you like ships, go check that out as a reading list because it's got a ton of really interesting stuff on there. Um, but it's like a super honor, right? Because I don't usually work in maritime, marine, naval whatever prefix you want to use their history and so um people are like I listened to this whole thing and that's not your special no I specialize in human sexuality you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> but um it's just such a fascinating story and I knew nothing and I knew that like you had said previously if you went to school in these United States you probably never heard of any of this and to me that's wild that is wild. Like this is a huge piece of world history that we never got to see. So anyway, I went on a tangent. I apologize. We were talking about me. I'm on all the other things. I'm on Twitter, but fuck that place. <laughs> um, I'm on Instagram. I think I have a Facebook page. I'm trying to be better at social media, but it's not my strong suit. I I want it to be, but I'm I am not Lil Nas X. I I dream. I would apprentice myself under him. He's a god of social media. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's so much fun. I just love everything he does. Right? You know, yeah. but okay. I have the, the standard outlets. Usually, yeah, the easiest place is probably the website. Let's let's list. Great. So A.E. Rooks, thank you so very much. You've been so generous with your time. And this has been one of my all-time favorite conversations first of all thank you i'm very competitive so i appreciate that once again i'd like to thank a.e rooks for stopping by the show her book is the black joke the true story of one ship's battle against the slave trade and it's out now you can find her at aerooks.com and you can also find our full two-hour interview up on our Patreon at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. And speaking of which, thank you to our brilliant patrons. Big hugs and so much love to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayana DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, 
Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Catherine Rowley-Williams, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. As always, there are other ways to support the show as well. You can rate, review, and subscribe, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Mastodon at Dirty Sexy History. We will post photos from today's show on our Instagram, including a picture of King Dick. <laughs> oh, you can also check out our website at DirtySexyHistory.com and find links to our guests and our online merch store there, too. There's all kinds of great stuff up there, and we're adding new articles all the time. So stop by and say hello. Have a great week, guys. See you next time.